You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. We continue our study in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And we've come to chapter 20. It's amazing how fast this is going. Um, The confession, as you know, worked out the uh, objective plan of salvation that God had. And then after that, it focused on the subjective experience of salvation. And then, interestingly enough, it begins to unfold all the implications of that. And last week, Pastor Pilon went through the law, Christian ethics, And then this week, immediately following the law, we talk about Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. So I think it's a wonderful way to set out our faith. And uh, before we look at this in detail, let's open up with prayer. Father, we thank you for the beautiful day you've given. We acknowledge you to be the one who sits enthroned in the heavens, who governs all things, who brings up the sun and gives us life and sustains us. And we thank you for setting aside one day in seven in which we can come and worship you, fellowship together, and be nourished, strengthened, encouraged. And we pray today that as we consider this particular topic, that your Holy Spirit who fills our hearts would guide our discussion. And we ask that it might honor the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. So we're looking at Christian liberty, liberty of conscience, and um, as we do so, it's important to note that the the divines are dealing here with two kind of extreme errors. They have Rome on the one side who usurped a lot of freedoms that the Christians enjoyed, and you have the antinomians on the other side who would claim that we have excess freedom from some of the authorities that God had delegated. So we're, we're navigating between those two as we go through this chapter. Civil liberty, freedom, is a privilege worth the sacrifice to recover when it's lost or to guard when it's obtained. Under the U.S. Constitution, the government is to respect the individual rights of each citizen. We believe that as a nation. In 1791, the Bill of Rights placed significant limitations on the government's power over individuals. If you are a student of U.S. history, you know that it guaranteed the freedom of religion, of speech, freedom of the press, peaceful assembly, the right of petition. It protects its citizens against unreasonable search and seizure, compulsory self-incrimination. You don't have to take the stand. Double jeopardy. And it makes provision for a speedy and public trial and guarantees the rights of private property. So these are civil liberties that we've been given in this particular context. And for these privileges, people have worked, fought, made great sacrifices. Many have died. We're so grateful for our military, our police, so forth, as they defend and protect. But as great as these liberties are, Far greater is the Christian liberty that we enjoy by faith in Jesus Christ. 
The soul, as the New Testament teaches us, is far more valuable than the body. Both are important. Make no mistake about it. The resurrection is absolutely essential. But the soul is more valuable than the body, and Christian liberty is more valuable than civil liberty. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If you have the best civil situation that the world can offer, if you're enslaved to sin, it makes no difference. So the confession begins by describing that liberty that's obtained by Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit. He'll deal with civil, or it'll deal with civil liberties later. But this is key. So we begin Christian liberty. The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, and the curse of the moral law. It's going to go through a whole litany of things that describes our freedoms. But it starts out with this. He who confesses and forsakes his transgressions will obtain mercy. The mercy of God spares us from what we deserve. The grace of God gives us what we don't deserve. And he is rich in mercy, with the demands of justice satisfied and all the requirements of the law fulfilled. We are justified by God. That's freedom. That's true freedom. You can look forward to the final day and know that with confidence you can stand before the great white throne of judgment without fear. That's freedom. Since we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we're free from the guilt of sin, and we're freed from the condemning wrath of God. And at the same time, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And this is true freedom, because if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. It doesn't say anything about physical limitations. It doesn't say anything about temporal enslavement. You can be a slave in somebody's kingdom on this earth and still be free because you're free in Christ. So I think the chapter does well by stating at the outset this true liberty that we have in Christ from these three things. But it goes on. And they're being delivered from this present evil world. Bondage to Satan and dominion of sin. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Now that doesn't mean he takes us out of history, obviously. Removes us from the world. But it does imply that everything that happens for the believer is for his or her good. So we're delivered from the fear uh, of evil. We're delivered from the adverse effects of evil. What did Joseph say? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. So we're delivered from this present evil world to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So no longer does the believer have to submit to the dominion of Satan. He's freed. He's liberated. The strong man has plundered the house of the evil one. Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. 
So the, the deliverance that begins in regeneration is carried on and advanced through sanctification. Yes, we fail. We sin. But the believer doesn't live and is not forced to live in the practice of sin. We've been delivered from the dominion of sin. So there are remnants of sin that we fight against every single day. You know it. I know it. We experience it. We repent. We believe. We're forgiven. And we're not under the dominion of sin. So let me stop and see if there's any comments or questions on these first initial things. True Christian liberty. We okay? John? By dominion, do you mean the power of sin? Yes. Yeah. So sin, you know, we're still in this already not yet condition. Already we're fully and forever justified. Not yet are we free from the presence of sin. Um, Its penalty, its power, gone. Its presence here. So we struggle, we fight. Why God has it that way, I don't know, but he does. And he teaches us many things. One of which is to rely upon him. Um, so we fight. And that this is the good fight of faith. It's not just fighting enemies that are external. It's fighting the enemy within. And that's not easy. And believe me, as you get older, it doesn't get any easier. It's hard. But it's worth the fight. John? I think uh, Augustine has a Latin phrase that like, before Christ we were uh, not free not to sin. Now in Christ today we are free not to sin. Christian liberty. Right. And then in glorified we will not be free to sin. Right. And some non- non posse and all that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some, some, some <laughs> right. The fourfold state of man. And right now we're in a state where we can choose either good or evil. Um, and process of Christian maturity is learning to discern good from evil, Hebrews chapter 5. The powers of discernment as we exercise those. So the Lord teaches and trains us, and he teaches us in this fight in particular. Every time you resist sin, it's a victory. I don't necessarily like that word too much in the Christian life, but it is a little victory, small v. We continue in their being delivered from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. So we're not exempt from the troubles that are common to man. All of us get sick. The COVID pandemic has proved that to be true. But we're freed from the evil of afflictions. So when an unbeliever is afflicted, it's an evil. Uh, The confession somewhere talks about it being a foretaste of of the things they'll suffer after death. For the believer, we get afflicted. It's for our good. All things, we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's unqualified. So the affliction is not evil for the believer. It is a good thing. Psalm 84.11 says, He will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. So if there's something good for you, God won't withhold it. He'll give it to you. That might mean affliction. Philippians 1.29, he granted you to suffer with Christ as well as believe in him. It's a gift. (laughs) 
Not many of us would think of suffering as a gift. But if we only knew what that suffering kept us from, we'd be thankful. It was good for me, says David, that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Meaning, if he hadn't been afflicted, he wouldn't learn his statutes, he wouldn't embrace the word of God, he would not have been sanctified. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a place where the word victory is awesome. Big V. He has gained the victory for us. Jesus endured that awful sting. He was stung. As deep as the sting can go, so that you and I didn't have to endure it. We're delivered from the evil of afflictions. As we said earlier, they're not evil for us. The sting of death. We can die, and that's gain. Right, Paul? I'm struck because I don't know which is better, to stay here and minister or to go with the Lord. I'd rather be with the Lord, he says. All these will go away into eternal punishment, everlasting damnation, but the righteous into eternal life. So we're delivered from everlasting damnation. That's a great salvation. It's great for many reasons. But it's great because of that from which we're saved. Um, If you don't believe, well, I'm speaking to the choir here, so to speak. But for those who don't believe that there is endless punishment, if you've ever read accounts of the death of saints and sinners, the In days gone by, they've been fascinated with last words of people who've died. Some being saints, some being sinners, and they've recorded them. And the death of sinners is absolutely horrid. Voltaire, the French uh, literature expert, literarian, and he was an atheist. When he died... The, uh, the nurse who was caring for him, I guess we would call her a hospice nurse in our day, she ran out of the room and said that she would never attend another funeral because so frightening was the way that Voltaire died. You can read it. Look it up on Google if you want. It's really awful. Because he began to experience and understand what he had forfeited. You know, This is the Christian's freedom. We're free in our access to God. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we can stand before God with confidence. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So, in a monarchy, one of the greatest privileges that any subject can enjoy is access to the throne. How can I get access to the king? In Christianity, every believer has free access to the king. He is concerned about every detail of your life. He welcomes every petition that you offer. This is wonderful free access. Paul emphasizes it again. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. You can go straight to the throne of grace. 
You can walk into the throne room of heaven, so to speak, and you have the king's ear. That's freedom. Any comments or questions on these? Uh, Carolyn, and we'll go to Jack. No. Right? No. They cannot any no. No. We don't know the final, the ultimate outcome. Like if, if they haven't been yet converted, God may be using that to bring them to Christ. But if they're not going to be converted, you're right. It's just the beginning of their torments, which they'll endure after death. Yeah. It's it's sobering. Yeah, not that one. <laughs> right. But they have a heart of stone, right? Right. That's, it's, what you give them is the heart truth of Yeah, unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. So we can give them that and say, hey, God may be using this to drive you to Christ. Think about it, please. I implore you, be reconciled to God. Yeah, Jack? I was just thinking, in the, in the life to come, how do we continue to grow as people without the presence of suffering and afflictions and this you know, choice between good and evil? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, but the thing is, we are going to be so transformed and equipped to explore the unsearchable and eternal riches of an infinite God. So our growth will be coming more full. Right? There's no, there's no resistance at that point. There's, there's nothing in terms of discerning good and evil because we will understand fully between good and evil. But we can't fully comprehend the infinite God. He's so full of richness and joy and blessedness. We will spend all the ages of eternity exploring blessedness. What does that mean? The joys that he has, the pleasures at his right hand, according to the psalmist, they're, they're infinite. I, I can't even begin to imagine the diversity of pleasures that he has. Holy pleasures, not sinful pleasures. So, yeah, I mean, we, we grow here a lot of times by affliction, by conflict, by opposition, that kind of thing. We're growing in maturity, but there we're perfected. So how do perfect beings grow? Well, you grow in fullness. The cup gets bigger and bigger, and God just keeps filling and filling. It's never monotonous. It's always fresh. It's amazing. It's going to be amazing. We continue. Also in their free access, well, that was a repeat. Believers in Christ have freedom to approach him as children to a gracious and loving father, As Paul says, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You can see this is a repetition. It's it's a theme that he's repeated several times. Access into the throne room with filial confidence. That word filial simply means like son-daughter relationship. With that kind of confidence and freedom, we can pour out our hearts and complaints 
to him. Don't be afraid to pour out your complaint. Look at Job. They talk about the patience of Job. He wasn't patient. He complained, but he complained in the right way. He didn't complain to his friends. He didn't complain complain to his family. He complained to the only one who could bear the weight of his complaint. And God has big enough shoulders to bear it. That was an expression of faith, actually. Some criticized Job for that, but I think it was an expression of faith. Lord, I'm pouring out my heart to you. I am suffering. And he's big enough to take it. They're yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. We're free to do that. Your freedom, what you were made to do, you're able to do, to obey God. The world looks at that and says, that is a burden. The moral law is a burden. The world looks at freedom as being allowed to do whatever their sinful desires want them to do, right? But the Bible defines freedom as being able to do that for which we were created, to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, to love our neighbor. Free to serve God without fear of reprisal, with expectation of favor. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for sincerity. He knows our frame. He knows we're but dust, (laughs) sinful dust. So he's not looking for perfection right now. He's looking for sincerity. And as we try to serve him, all of it tainted with sin, it's mediated through Christ. He accepts it just like a parent would accept the crayon drawing of a child and be thrilled. He's pleased. Any obedience of the unbeliever is like that of a slave to a hated tyrant. So if an unbeliever seeks to obey the morals of the law, it's because ultimately it's like a slave. It's begrudging. I don't steal because I understand. I've been trained. I understand that there is punishment. That's what the unbeliever ultimately thinks. If we can get right down to the root of his being, that's what he's thinking. It's slavish fear. But the Christian is motivated by a principle of love. Gratitude to the Father who saved him. So this great salvation, you know, like oftentimes Paul will set out the truth of something and then draw the implication. Ephesians 1 to 3, this is who you are. You're saved. You're a child of God. You have access to the Father. You have heaven to look forward to. Now, how does that look in your life? Well, out of gratitude, you walk in a manner worthy of this high calling. You can imagine Prince William growing up. Buckingham Palace, right? He's eight years old. And he's doing something foolish. And the queen mother comes to him and says, Prince William, you're a prince. Don't act like this. It's beneath the dignity of a prince. And you can imagine him saying, her saying that. Well, that's what Paul is saying. You are priests and kings. Like Narnia, you know, they're priests and kings. You're priests and kings. This is unworthy of a priest and king of the Most High God. Let's serve him with gratitude. 
All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. <clears throat> For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. <clears throat> so this filial spirit, again, we try our best. We serve him with sincerity. We understand that as a loving father, he's not a tyrant folding his arms, tapping his foot, waiting for us to buck up. No, he's teaching us, training us. He's pleased with us because of Christ. Any comments or questions on these? Okay. All which were common also to believers under the law. Very important point that the confession makes here. These liberties that we've just described, <clears throat> David enjoyed under the Old Testament. Samuel enjoyed. Moses enjoyed. Abraham enjoyed the same liberties. All the believers in the Old Testament had these same freedoms. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we're blessed like Abraham was blessed. That's what he's saying. They enjoyed these freedoms. Their enjoyment was proleptic. There's a fancy and expensive word for you. And anticipated Christ. They trusted in the coming Christ of promise while we trust in the incarnate Christ of history. It's just a different perspective. But, and the confession goes on to distinguish new believers, by, or New Testament believers, by saying, under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged. So while we have the same freedoms, it's not a matter of kind, it's a matter of degree. Ours is further enlarged. We're freed from the yoke of the ceremonial law, a burdensome duty that's been abrogated, all those sacrifices. Can you imagine having to come to Jerusalem? The city on a hill that stunk like blood, no matter when you came. Morning, noon, night, blood. They had to come and they had to obey these ceremonial requirements day after day, week after week, year after year. We're freed from that. So in one sense, we have a further enlargement of our freedom from this yoke that their fathers couldn't keep. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Most commentators think Paul there is referring to the Mosaic requirements, the basic things of the true religion. We have greater boldness of access by a new and living way. We have fuller communications of this free spirit of God. The spirit was at work in the Old Testament. He regenerated the heart of David. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, Psalm 51. So the Spirit, they were born again, just like we are. But he's more profuse in the New Testament. At Pentecost, it's as if the barn doors were flung open and it just went all over the place. This avalanche, this flood of the Spirit. As yet, Jesus said, or John said, I'm sorry, the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What does that mean? Does it mean that the Spirit did not work in the Old Testament? Some people think that way. 
The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament liberty is a matter of degree, so that by contrast, the profuseness, the largeness of the pouring out of the Spirit in the New Testament is so much, it's as if there was nothing in the Old. You know, um, it's sort of like when Jesus says in John 11, John the Baptist is the greatest of all those born of women. He's a prophet, ethically superior. He's a far greater man than me. But then he goes on to say, yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Well, Jesus, what do you mean? How can you say that? He's the greatest of those born among women, but the least in the kingdom is greater than John. Well, it's because the least in the kingdom is in the New Testament, the new covenant, greater privilege, greater position, right? So this is what he's saying here in John 7, 39. It's as if the Spirit had not been given because it's so profuse now. The Spirit is poured out not just upon the elect of Israel. The Spirit is poured out upon people from every nation under heaven. Any questions on this part? Eddie? Why do you think the Westminster Confession wants to point that out, all of which were common also to be under God? Were they correcting some misunderstanding? Even in our day, even in our day, some people think, well, those Old Testament believers, they had it rough because, you know, they didn't have the Spirit, they didn't have salvation by Christ, <clears throat> they weren't born again, they just kind of had to follow all these rules. And the point is, no. They had the same salvation that we have. It's the continuity of the covenants, Right? It's continuity of salvation. They were saved like we are. They have the same freedoms. <clears throat> but we have more. It's enlarged. So it's not like we have something that they don't have. It's just that whatever we all have, we have enlarged. John? Uh, I think of the kind of like the Old Testament through a glass dimly. And now we can see much more fully. Right. That's what they spoke with prophets. It was some kind of confusing. They're talking about the same thing, though. Right. It wasn't one God here, different God here. Very good. Yep. That's right. We, they had shadows. Looking yeah. In shadows, now we see more clearly, but we're looking at the same thing. That's right. So they understood the coming of a champion, the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah. But they had no idea that it would be incarnate son of God who would die on a cross, although they should have from Isaiah 53. The crucifixion seemed to be clear looking back on it. But it was very obscure. It was shadows. And now, as John said, we have the privilege of clarity. But yet there is, the Holy Spirit seemed to, there was a, a veil. And, but then again, Hannah prayed. Hannah was praying before Samuel. Agnes was praying in the temple. Here's a woman. She's not even, that is not circumcision. He's praying, and God hears her. All right. Because of the coming Messiah. And the veil is over those who could not believe and understand. Because he says, remember, I was in 2 Corinthians 4 or something like that, where he says, when the veil is taken away, they have a veil they can't understand. When the veil is taken away, they see uh, the light of the glory of God shining in our hearts. So he enables the believer, opening the eye of his heart, so he can see. I think that imagery is used by Paul to show that when a sinner is converted, that veil's taken away. 
I think that's kind of the imagery of Paul when the scales fell. You know, that only happened with Paul. Nobody else had scales. But it was almost a visible image of conversion, that he had scales blinding him for at least three days, and then all of a sudden they fell away. Was it when Ananias baptized him? Yeah. Liberty of conscience. So the freedom that we have, given all that we talked about with the law, we have freedom as Christians. And then there's this liberty of conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith and worship. Conscience. It's the divinely implanted monitor of all thoughts, words, and actions. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord searching all his innermost parts. It searches. It exposes. It accuses or excuses. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. This is one of the things, by the way, that reveal the existence of God. Where does conscience come from if two molecules bang together and we're just a living plasma or something like that? You scientists know the language, but God put this within. Conscience. The human conscience is subject to God alone and ultimately responsible only to his authority. No person on earth has his own inherent authority to command or bind your conscience. I can't tell you, you have to buy a Chevy Cavalier out of conscience. I'm binding you. I I don't have that authority. But if I say you have to repent of robbing banks, I can bind your conscience because that goes against the word of God, right? So anything that is beside or contrary to the word of God. It doesn't bind your conscience. To bind the conscience is to call something sin on which God's law gives freedom to disagree. Buying a Chevy Cavalier. We can disagree on that. I think it's a good car. Not a bad deal. But you might disagree. Believers might be led to equate something with obedience to God that he's not commanded. You shouldn't dance. Right? Well, like Pharisees, they wanted to put a fence around them. And sometimes dancing would get lascivious. And, okay, let's not dance. No, that's not what the Bible says. David danced. You shouldn't dance lasciviously, but you you can dance. It's wrong to frame rules that are contrary to the word... For example, forbidding the eating of meat, or beside it, mandatory fasts. Now, fasting is a good thing. The Bible does say we should fast. But for me to command you to fast every Wednesday, that's beside the word. I can't bind your conscience to do that. So anything contrary to the word, everything God's created is good, and it's sanctified by the word and prayer. Meat. I can't command you not to eat meat. That's contrary to the word. I can't command you to fast every Wednesday. That's beside the word. I cannot bind your conscience. The only written source in this world 
with authority to bind your conscience are the Holy Scriptures. And everything we do as a church, we better have a good reason for it. We better be able to point to Scripture. Otherwise, you're not bound. You know. We continue, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. If you were to say to yourself, <clears throat> well, pastor said I should buy a Chevy Cavalier, I'm bound to do it. You are betraying true liberty of conscience. So isn't it important for us to inform our conscience by the Bible? This is what we do with children, in part. We help inform their conscience. Because God puts the conscience there. The work of the law is written on the heart. But we help by informing the conscience to discern between good and evil. To believe or obey such matters as a matter of conscience is to sin against the Lord. This was very important to the reformers. They're coming out of a context where Rome on the right, Arminians on the left. Rome, you got to do this. Arminians, you can do whatever you want. So they're navigating this and saying, liberty of conscience is to obey the word of God, not the commandments of men. And to obey the word of God, not do whatever you want. We're set free, from con- set free the conscience from believing or obeying what he's not revealed or commanded. <clears throat> and the requiring of an implicit faith. What that means, don't read your Bible. Just believe me, the priest. I'll tell you what you should believe and obey. That's an implicit faith. It's mediated through a human mediator. So you are giving carte blanche authority to your religious leader, which you shouldn't do. What I say, you need to compare with Scripture. So the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. It's unreasonable. Why? Why would you trust a sinful, fallible man without comparing what I say to the ultimate authority? To require belief or obedience to man is to usurp God's prerogative. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. So your lawgiver, your judge and mine is the Lord God. And he's given us his word. Once again, we get back to we need to be people of the word. You need to know what God's word says so that you can avoid, excuse me, destroying liberty of conscience. That's why we grow in our knowledge of Christ. Some believers are weighed down with the fear of offending God over matters of indifference. And this is sad because you're free. If you want to go out and celebrate at a wedding and dance? Dance! Don't let anybody tell you you can't do that. If you want to sit down with your family on a Saturday night and have a card game, play cards. And we might chuckle at this, but for many generations, this was looked at as sinful. It is not prohibited. Well, what did the, uh, the vines actually, were the vines constricting on culture? Because a lot of Puritans were very focused building of it. I mean, you can say you're free to do it, but if you're really, really holy, you will never, you, you would be focused on other things. Right? Yeah, I mean, what they're going to say, I think, is the whole process of sanctification. You'll be getting, you'll have new desires, 
and the seed of God that's in you beginning to blossom and bear fruit is going to express itself in the things you say and the things you do and the things you watch, you know. So they'll talk about uh, lascivious stage plays. They didn't have movies back then. Lascivious stage plays. So you don't go down and you watch these body plays. Why? Well, because it's unholy. It's a, it's a temptation to lust, all these things. And what they're saying is that you are a prince. And a prince of heaven doesn't wallow in the mud. That's what they're saying. So you're free. The, the true freedom is not going to the lascivious stage play. True freedom is putting aside those websites that are awful. Those are enslaving. Freedom is walking in holiness. I think that's what they would say. I think that's what they're getting at. Church leaders must not expand the list of duties or sins beyond the teaching of Scripture. The Bible doesn't require of the believer, <clears throat> excuse me, obedience to the lawful commands of law, does require of believers obedience to the lawful commands of lawful superiors. So <clears throat> we need to know if the command is lawful. Is it lawful? Are you a lawful superior? You know, I can't command Greg's children the way Greg can command his children because he's a lawful father. I'm not their father. I am their pastor, and I have a, a, a little limited amount of authority, but not like that. So a lawful superior giving lawful commands, we obey. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Liberty of conscience. <clears throat> they are to obey their parents. That's not wrong. But even in that parental relationship, even there, there are limits. Because a parent can't require something that contradicts the word of God. What was that? Was it Elsie Dinsmore? Was that the book? And it was this girl... Um, her da- it was written in the 1800s, and her dad wanted her to play the piano, I think, <clears throat> on Sunday. And she refused. And my, my daughters chuckled because Elsie Dinsmore was perfect, or at least closest thing to it. And they're like, this isn't even a real woman, you know. But the point was, even her father, whom she loved dearly, the point was, she was not going to violate her conscience and do something contrary to the word of God even if it was commanded by her father. Uh, Limits to liberty. Now, this gets into the whole idea of, okay, you've been given freedom, but there are limits. Practice any sin, cherish any lust, destroy the end of Christian liberty. You don't have the right and freedom to think, speak, or act as you like, excuse me, without regard to the moral law. This is what the world looks at as freedom. I can do whatever I want. The Christian looks at freedom as being able to do what God made me to do. He's not freed the conscience from the obligation of conforming to his revealed will. Our conscience is bound by the word of God. Isn't that what Luther said? Here I stand, and I'm bound by the word of God and reason. As creatures, we're bound to love God above all else, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Biblically-based limits to Christian liberty are God's authority and our neighbor's good. So you're, biblically speaking, you're more important than me from my perspective, 
from your perspective, I'm more important than you. So it's our neighbor. The end of our Christian liberty is to fulfill our duty without hindrance from others. That's the end. That's the goal. To do what God created you to do. We, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That's the goal. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Serve him without fear. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I can serve Gentiles. I can serve Jews. doesn't make any difference. But I can't serve my own lusts. When we're renewed and transformed by the Spirit, we're able to prove the will of God. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Any questions on this? It's only one more slide. Church and state. You can't use your freedom to disobey lawful magistrate. You have to obey the lawful commands of lawful authorities. There's lawful authority in church. There's lawful authority in state. Part of our faith is expressing our obedience to both. Each of them has respective authority in their own spheres. So a Christian does not have liberty to oppose that authority. I had a man once in our church. This is years and years ago. Um, many years since he's not been here, he moved away. But he um, believed that as a Christian, he didn't have to pay taxes. Just didn't do it. I'm free. Well, (laughs) they caught up with him. That's a different story. But the point is, he interpreted his Christian liberty that he could disobey. Paul says, oh, to those who owe taxes, pay taxes. Romans, is it 13 or 14? I can't remember. Honor to those who deserve honor, taxes to those who have taxes. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. It's all from God. Absolute obedience to God is required, and consideration for a fellow man cannot be ignored. As long as civil or ecclesiastical powers require what is in harmony with God's word, you and I have to obey. Do they have the authority to set the speed limit at 55? Yes, they do. Sorry. And I'm just as bad as anybody. I've got a lead foot, and it's terrible. My conscience usually bothers me. If I'm going with the flow of traffic, I say, okay, well, it's ad populum. But they do have that authority, and we should obey. There are very different opinions, and there are some who in good conscience say, for example, the government does not have God-given authority to tell me what to inject into my body. Now, people disagree, but if you're conscience-bound, if you, with the right of private judgment, if you read Scripture and you believe that to be true, that nobody has the authority to tell me what to inject in my body, then you have Christian liberty to say, God tells me no. I don't have to obey that. But you have to be convinced. And you have to go to Scripture for that. Eddie? I wonder if it was a lot 
these here in those days, before America, before the United States of America, it was easier to determine who had authority over you, where now we have, well, wait a minute, we have a court that might say this is not a legal mandate. Does the CDC really have authority, or are they really just supposed to be a, an informative kind of body? So I, I, feel, I feel like it's more difficult now to determine to John's point. Yeah, I'm not sure it'd be more difficult. I, I, they had their own issues, tough issues. King, Cromwell, overthrowing the king. Is it right? You know, and there are all kinds of issues in every generation. But the point is, is that we have to go to Scripture. And again, we might disagree on how Scripture applies in a given situation with a vaccine mandate, for example. And we have to recognize that it has to be an issue of conscience. So somebody might say... My conscience is bound. One other might say, well, I respect that, but my conscience is not bound. And we respect each other. But there are certain things that are clear. You don't murder. You don't murder. We're all bound. I've taken you beyond time. Let me close in prayer. Great question. Sorry to close on a can of worms. <laughs> Father, we thank you for the freedoms we have as Christians. Thank you that our conscience is free and bound only by your authority. Help us to understand how that applies in each area of our lives and prepare us now for worship, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.